night, good evening, hello, welcome to our evening worship service. We're returning to our study of eschatology. We'll get to First Thessalonians soon enough, but we're uh, trying to sort of attack this by um, looking at a number of other principles that I think will ultimately help us to understand First Thessalonians and eschatology in general. Uh, so we're going to be looking at different views of the book of Revelation tonight. And I want to begin now with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you so very much for this opportunity to, again, uh, congregate with your redeemed sons and daughters. And we appreciate and are grateful for this opportunity to fellowship with one another. Please continue to protect and preserve our liberties to worship without persecution. May we uh, live at peace and worship at peace. And I ask for your guidance and direction tonight as we look together at your truth and uh, at different doctrinal matters and issues related to understanding the book of Revelation. Uh, teach us now that we might be more fully prepared to understand what your word says about the second coming and the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I should say in Jesus' name, amen. Well, again tonight, I've said this a few times in our study about end times, and if, if ever, ever there's a point that this really applied, it's tonight. This is really going to be much more like a class lecture than it is going to be a sermon over a particular text. But I, I believe that studying these various principles of eschatology, end times, the study of end times will help us to better understand the theology of Jesus' second coming and the future. I've used a couple of illustrations already in the weeks and now I think months that we've been looking at eschatology. One of them is making a puzzle. When you make a puzzle, you often have a picture to help guide you and direct you as you build the puzzle. But this is a little bit like building a puzzle without the picture. And so when you're building a puzzle, at least for those who really know how to build a puzzle, when you're talking about a large puzzle, a complicated puzzle, where do you typically uh, begin with building a puzzle? The edges and the corners, right? Uh, you build the edges and the corners, and you sort of establish and you, you set those, and then you can sort of build off of those. And then where do you go after doing the edges and the corners? At least I do. Um, I start to look at things that look like they go together, and I try to, to group those, you know, colors and patterns and things such as that. And you begin to sort of group those together. But at first, it doesn't look like much of a picture, does it? And you don't always see just looking at your edges and your corner and the, the random groupings of pieces necessarily the end picture that you're going to result or end up with. But you have to go through that process in order to sort of end up there. And what I'm concerned about is that I think a lot of Christians just really want someone to just sit down and one evening 
a couple of evenings or maybe a conference, just give me everything that you want to hear and just boom, 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 boom. And okay, I've given you a narrative, I've given you a story, it sounds reasonable, uh, I'll go with that. And without really necessarily checking all of the scriptures and the context of those scriptures, they trust somebody who seems to have expertise in a particular field and they just sort of embrace that and they never really test it uh, according to scripture. Um, yeah, they might go up and look at those verses and say, okay, well, that sort of seems to fit. But they, they don't, uh, as a student of the word, keep going back over the scriptures and really seeing how the parts and the pieces fit together. The other illustration I've used, which is similar, is that of building Legos. Anybody here still build Legos? I do. I've got kids, and uh, so I build Legos still. And uh, it's a very similar, like preparing for a puzzle. What do you do first? If you're building a more complicated Lego set, what's it called? Does anybody know? It's called knolling. Knolling your Legos. You pull together the common pieces and then you build from that. And so this is again what we're doing tonight. We're looking at one of those pieces. We're gathering some groups of things together. Uh, You're not going to walk away tonight necessarily feeling like, well, I know a particular passage better in its application to my life, which makes up 99% of the preaching that I do here. And that's the main goal with most preaching and teaching that goes on here. I want to have a look at the text or the next passage in a book of the Bible that we're studying through. We'll dive into that text. We'll look at the parts of that text and the meaning of the words and the structure of the passage and uh, the message of that passage. And we want to preach it, explain it, apply it so that you know that text and you can think properly and apply that to life. This is really, truly more of a, a... classroom kind of study. But I think it will be helpful in understanding not only how to interpret the book of Revelation, but some of the different views on how to interpret the book of Revelation so that you can maybe understand where some different brethren might be coming from regarding their understanding of this particular book. Now, when I'm talking about interpreting the book of Revelation here, I am not talking tonight about hermeneutics. Uh, necessarily, although I think hermeneutics are involved, and hermeneutics is the science and art of biblical interpretation. We're not necessarily talking about how to interpret the individual verses and so on, what methodologies you use. We're going to talk about various approaches to and understandings of the book of Revelation. Now, my son Matthew will be back in a moment with some markers, and so uh, in the meantime, to make it easier on yourself, you'll probably want to write down these different terms. And then we'll move to writing them on the board, and you can write those down from the board. It'll be easier to see when we do that. But uh, uh, just listen carefully for the words and and definitions and terms. I'll try to spell them out uh, to make it easier to see where we're at as we move through our study tonight. Okay, so interpretive approaches to the book of Revelation. Uh, let, Let me begin with, I think, Uh, what is probably without question the most troubling view and interpretation of the the book of Revelation. It's a view when carried to its extreme is typically regarded by most churches as being actually heretical. And uh, this view is called preterism. Let me spell that for you. P-R-E-T-E-R-I-S-M. Preterism. 
And, and what preterism basically believes is that all of prophecy in Scripture, including all or most of the book of Revelation, has already been fulfilled. Yes, you heard me correctly. Uh, Preterism believes that all of prophecy, including the book of Revelation, has already come to pass. Hmm, interesting. Uh, There's one preterist view that sees, or at least regards the entire book of Revelation as having been fulfilled prior to and culminating in the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. In other words, the the preterist sees the book of Revelation as this extensive, detailed, prophetic preparation for the destruction of Israel and Jerusalem in AD 70. That's the whole book. I could not more strongly disagree with that view, but I want you to be aware of that so that in part, if you ever hear somebody say, well, I'm a preterist, you'll know what they mean and maybe understand why it is a concern that they hold to this particular view. Again, one of the preterist views, P-E-R-E-T-R-I-S-T, one of the preterist views, again, sees all of Revelation as foretelling the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Now, uh, let me just see if you can uh, just get the answer to this, because I think it's sort of self-evident. Um, what year do you think the preterist believes the book, or years, do you think the preterist believes the book of Revelation was written prior to or following A.D. 70? Prior to. I don't, think, I don't think that's a good date for the book of Revelation. Uh, but you can understand why they would want to predate the book before A.D. 70, since it is clear that Jerusalem was destroyed in A.D. 70, if it is a prophecy of that destruction and of the destruction of Israel, then it would have to be written before A.D. 70. They really see, because of Israel's crucifixion of Messiah, uh, this being a book really condemning Israel as apostate. And they also look at the fact that Israel participated a great deal in the early persecutions of the church. And so the book of Revelation becomes for them uh, just more of a a foretelling of God's judgment upon the people of Israel. In in preterism, Babylon the Great that is mentioned in the book of Revelation several times is considered to be apostate Israel who assists Rome in persecuting the church. And certainly it is true that Israel did largely participate in the persecution of the church in the first few decades. And it is true that a judgment befell the city of Jerusalem, which I believe Jesus uh, foretells in the earlier part of Revelation, or excuse me, of Matthew 24. So I do think the Bible deals with the destruction of Jerusalem. I, I think it's hinted at in portions of the book of Revelation. I don't believe it is the focus of the entire book. As a matter of fact, um, the preterist who tends to regard the book of Revelation as almost God entirely pouring out his judgment upon apostate Israel, I think Revelation does focus on judging unbelievers in Israel, but it focuses even more upon judging the unbelief of the nations. Um, So right away you've got a problem if you think it's just focused on unbelieving Israelites. It certainly ultimately spends more time judging and speaking of judgment toward 
unbelieving Gentiles. Which is why there is a, a different preterist view that regards the book of Revelation as not necessarily prophesying or foretelling the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, but seeing that Israel was later in league with Rome and then Rome sort of took over the persecution deal, they believe the book of Revelation prophesies the fall of the Roman Empire, which is still past, Right? And, and so whether the preterist views it as uh, a prophetic pronouncement of the destruction of Israel and Jerusalem in AD 70, or whether a preterist regards this as a prophecy of the downfall of the Roman Empire, both of those realities, and both of those are true, but uh, is this what the book of Revelation is really about, or only about? And uh, so I think part of the problem of full preterism, okay, is that all prophecy has been already fulfilled, including the second coming of Jesus, okay, which is, I think, the biggest problem with what is called full preterism. You say, what do they then do? What is the what is the second coming of Jesus? Well, for the preterists, it's just or it's all sort of figurative, and it speaks about the believer going to heaven, and that sort of pictures the coming of Christ, and it's really our gathering together with him. And so ultimately, the biggest problem uh, of preterism is not simply its singular focus upon either Israel in AD 70 or the Roman Empire a few centuries after that, the biggest problem is their outright denial of the visible, physical, bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, bodily return of the Lord Jesus Christ. They, they deny there is yet a, a physical return of Christ yet to come. Okay, And he, he sort of came in judgment in AD 70. Or he came in judgment against the Roman Empire. That's the coming of Christ, is when he judged Israel, or he judged uh, the Roman Empire. And then, really, the hope of every Christian is, as we die, we're all gathered uh, to be with him. And uh, if you sort of think about it, there's no real end point to history then at that, with that view, right? Where does it end? You see the problem? If sort of all that stuff, including the return of Christ, is pictured as being past, and really uh, Christ's coming is really more his judgment of Israel or his judgment of the Roman Empire, and then ultimately our gathering together with him in heaven, are we then, based on that view, looking forward to a physical bodily return of Christ? No. Uh, which is why full preterism, that is pre being a beforehand, Full preterism says everything's already been fulfilled. All the Old Testament prophecies and everything Daniel talks about and everything that's talked about in the book of Revelation, it's already fulfilled. So no future bodily resurrection of Christ. Can you understand why a majority of churches out there have then regarded someone who holds to full preterism as actually being a heretic? Because they're denying the bodily return of Christ. Okay? Now, just to clarify a little bit, there are individuals that are called partial 
preterists, okay? A partial preterist is somebody who does agree that the book of Revelation was largely written and fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 and or fulfilled in the destruction of the Roman Empire, but that there is actually a second coming of Jesus Christ yet to come, which makes them a partial preterist, which is less heretical to be sure because they're still affirming a bodily return of the Lord Jesus Christ. So basically the the partial preterist sees uh, 99% of the Bible's prophecy as being fulfilled sometime in the first century or a few centuries after that, uh, but yet we're waiting Jesus' return. Okay? So that is... Preterism. So if anybody ever says, I'm a full preterist, you know you're dealing with somebody who thinks Jesus is not coming back in bodily form. So you've got a real issue there, and you want to really talk to them about this uh, concern. And then if you talk to someone and they say, well, I'm a partial preterist, you know that you're dealing with someone who thinks a majority of Bible prophecy, including the book of Revelation, has been completed, and yet the only thing really left is the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Which, again, is less of a problem because it affirms Jesus' return, but it's a huge issue. And so you need to know the book of Revelation and other prophecies to be able to help them identify prophecies which have yet to be fulfilled other than the return of Christ. Okay? And I think there's a lot of prophecy that is yet to be fulfilled, but that's the the preterist view. Uh, Then we have the historicist view of Revelation. Let me start to write these down if I could. So you have the the preterist. And they're going to have two forms, either that revelation has to do with the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, or the fall of Rome, the Roman Empire. And and you need to know that there are uh, partial or full preterists and partial preterists. The difference being, will Jesus actually come uh, bodily? Okay, now you have the second approach to the book of Revelation. This is the historicist. Okay. Basically, the, the historicist sees the book of Revelation as descriptive of church history, beginning at the start of church history with the letters to the seven churches, and then, of course, which are applied to churches throughout history, and then sort of stretching throughout history different points of the book of Revelation apply to certain events, specific events, throughout this present age. Um, and, and I mean really specific events. Like the historicist does believe that Revelation begins by dealing with uh, the, the first century church and progresses through history to the second coming of Christ. And they believe in the, the bodily return of the Lord Jesus Christ, maybe. So we'll talk about that in a moment. Um, 
the historicist, the, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, yeah, maybe, and we'll talk about that in a moment. So the historicist so sees the, the, the seals in the book of Revelation and the trumpets and the bowls as successive unfolding events in church history. And again, very specific events. Uh, for example, um, attacks on the church, attacks on Christianity, uh, as you see the, the trumpets, the bowls, and, and all the troubles that come are, are connected by the historicist with, with very specific events, like the invasion of the Goths into the Roman Empire, or the invasion of the Muslims, or the corruption of the papacy in the Middle Ages, or the reign of Charlemagne, or the Reformation, or uh, later destructions brought by Napoleon and even Hitler. And so they're going to get really specific with, well, I think this applies to that, and this applies to this, and this applies to that. Now, one of the problems with this particular view of really trying to uh, connect certain portions of the book of Revelation with very specific uh, historic events is that really depending upon when you live in church history, and where you live in church history might cause you to interpret those different incursions or persecutions as being different historical events. And there's no way to, to really know for sure whether you're connecting the right event with the particular so-called prophecy that goes with it. It's really a turkey shoot. And it's like, you know, what events do I want to put with what? And, and so it's, it's very uncertain, and, and the interpretation from this historical perspective, understandably, tends to differ based upon when the interpreter lives, right? So, hey, what's happened so far in history, and how does that connect to portions of the book of Revelation? Of course, there are a lot of people who do that today related to the things unfolding in the book of Revelation. Hey, what's happening in the Middle East? And they sort of try to connect up. What's really funny is to, to watch guys like, Jack Van Impey or somebody like that over the years and to watch him change the application of a particular passage to this back in 1980 and then something different in 90 and, and so on. And so it would just sort of, sort of morph. So the same problem happens when you try to interpret Revelation by the newspaper today or by the magazine or by the latest thing coming on, on the internet. You're trying to connect stuff. Um, I think a much healthier approach to eschatology is understanding more general realities rather than trying to always tie it into a specific event. Uh, because when that happens, you usually end up looking ridiculous. Uh, fortunately, I think, not fortunately, but I think a lot of those people just count on people not having a memory of what they've said about those events in the past. Right? They're not paying attention to, wait a second, that teacher said that meant this back four years ago, and then this two years ago, and this today, and, and they're constantly shifting and, and changing. Another problem of some who hold to uh, this historical view is that the future fulfillment of these events could not be known prior to their fulfillment. And so... Not only could there be wrong interpretations of the past and the present, but how would you ever know how they apply until those things arrive? Um, they really wouldn't benefit anyone except for people living in, in that time period. So, in general, though, they do hold to a bodily return of Christ. I won't deal with the other uh, not-so-specific, but in general, historicists will uh, hold to... 
the future bodily return of Christ. Then there is the the futurist view, of course. We've seen the preterist view. We've seen the historicist view, view, which is trying to basically connect uh, elements of Revelation to very specific events. Okay? Next we have the futurist view. The futurist view, basically, regarding the book of Revelation, sees Revelation 4 through 22 as all being future. Pretty much. Maybe not 100%, but mostly future. And they would argue that really none of it has to do with the destruction of Jerusalem or Christian history. It's really not applicable today at all. Well, you do have the letters to the churches, and those can be applied throughout history, but but really most of the book of Revelation is understood as future, and you can study it. You can anticipate the future, but unless you are the generation that lives during the time of Jesus coming, it won't apply to your life experientially. Again, you can study it. You can learn from it and have certain expectations about the future and that's can be interesting and and even helpful as far as hopeful goes but actually experiencing the things in the book of Revelation uh, tend not to be um, really experienced by any except for those who actually are in the generation in which Jesus comes because it's all future. As far as we know, right now, it's all, well, not as far as we know, it is for us all future, although from a futurist perspective, those final events can begin to unfold any day now. And there's no question that things are sort of progressing in a way that uh, would favor aspects of dispensational premillennialism, historic premillennialism, and amillennialism, because there is a progress of decay in each of those three views. Um, and, and so there is an expectation that things are going to unfold and, and, and things are going to decay, and after that, Jesus is, is going to come back. Probably the most common futurist view today is what is called dispensationalism. I, I don't think it's a reach to suggest that a vast majority of North American, and I'm saying that on purpose, a vast majority of North American Christians in the 20th century have been taught either this view or exclusively this view. There are some exceptions, but it is the dominant view of 20th century America. That is not true of most of other nations. Dispensationalism does not hold that heavy a sway in nations outside of America, including very conservative churches. So it tends to be a North American view, and and it really... um, began, though, in England, although it's not as popular in England today, it began in England in the 1830s. 
and basically what you have in dispensational premillennialism uh, is, is certain expected events such as um, the rapture of the church, uh, seven-year tribulation, uh, the Antichrist, the coming of Jesus, the binding of Satan, a judgment, the restoration of Israel to its land, followed by a 1,000-year millennial reign on the earth, then Satan's final rebellion, another judgment, and then the new heavens and the new earth. Okay, that's, that's basically... I mean, I didn't get every element in there, but that's kind of the, some of the highlights of, uh, of dispensational premillennialism, which, again, started in the 1830s um, and uh, made its way to the United States during certain prophecy conferences that were held and were popularized. It was popularized by certain uh, uh, books, including um, Schofield's, C.I. Schofield's Study Bible, which basically holds to that particular framework. In the modern day, uh, it would be typically somebody like John MacArthur uh, has uh, popularized this particular view, although he describes himself as a leaky dispensationalist. Kind of an interesting uh, description. Another... um, view that if you look at all of church history that has been an even more dominant view as far as futurism would be what is called historical uh, premillennialism. And when you're looking at futurism and interpreting, er, interpreting, interpreting, interpreting the book of Revelation, um, historic, historic premillennialism uh, is the view of premillennialism that you find going back to the early church. And you see this in the first and second century and so on. There's really two views that you see in the first century and following. That's historic premillennialism and amillennialism. Those are the two views that you can trace really back to the first century. Uh, now, of course, what the Bible teaches would trace it back to the Bible, but right now I'm speaking about what we know from, from history and, and the, the dominance of certain views in history. So the, the first two uh, dominant views that you find in the early church fathers starting in the first century is historic premillennialism and amillennialism. Both of those views um, believe in certain common aspects of the decay and the the degrading of the world and the second coming of Christ and so on. In fact, it's interesting that historic premillennialism actually teaches that the church is true Israel, which is exactly what Amil teaches. So everybody in the first century believed that the church is true Israel. The idea that there is a distinction between Israel and the church started really in 1830. Um, although there are, uh, yeah, so you have people who believe in a millennial earthly reign in the first century and a heavenly reign of Christ in the first century. So that's different. One views the millennium as realized in Christ's reign in heaven. That's the Amil view. The other sees Jesus fulfilling his millennial reign on the earth during a thousand year period. But both of those groups during the first century and onward, held that the church was true Israel. Okay? Um, so that's the, the futurist view. Now there are other branches um, other than historic pre-mill and dispensational pre-mill uh, in this futurist view. You have uh, mid-trib, which teaches that 
Um, the rapture happens in the middle of the tribulation and pre-wrath, which teaches that the rapture happens um, when the, the wrath of God is poured out, which is a little bit further than uh, halfway through the tribulation. So it's interesting, for dispensationalism, when does the rapture take place? When, when, as far as relating to the tribulation, for the dispensationalist, when does the rapture take place? Pre-tribulation. So this is a pre-view here. It believes that the catching up the church is before the tribulation. Uh, the mid-tribulation view teaches, can you guess when they teach the rapture? <laughs> In the middle, three and a half years, right in the middle. And so this is obviously mid, right here. The historic premillennial view sees the church being caught up at the second coming of Christ when he appears before the whole world so that every eye sees him, so that the church goes through the tribulation, which means that they see the catching up of the church as being when in relationship to the tribulation? Post. Since the church goes through the tribulation in this view, the rapture is post-tribulational. Now, you need to understand, every view that holds to a tribulation believes God preserves his people through the tribulation, if you go through it. One of the thoughts of getting the church out first is because of what's going to come upon the earth. You need to understand that the, the mid-view and the, the post-view and even the, the pre... I should call this pre-wrath. <clears throat> believes that God preserves uh, his people through whatever portion of the tribulation they go through. They, they might die in a flood. They might die... Um, by persecution, but they're not going to be dying by any direct punitive wrath of God. So really it's the same answer for, for every view regarding the church. This just says, well, they're taken out beforehand, so they won't suffer. Uh, but the post and mid and, and, and pre-wrath, they say, well, God protects the people through this so that no punitive wrath of God will be poured out directly on God's people. Okay, unless you feel like, oh, well, you know, if they go through... The, the tribulation, it must be that they're gonna, God's wrath is going to pour out against them. By the way, this is why I highlighted in my reading of Revelation, excuse me, 1 Thessalonians 5 today, when God says you're not destined for wrath, some people interpret that as the tribulation. That is not the tribulation. Go back and read that text. Because it is cast in that text against What? salvation, so that the wrath, where Paul says we're not destined for wrath, in, in 1 Thessalonians 5, is not the tribulation, it's hell. He says, you're not destined for wrath, but for salvation, and then he mentions the gospel. Okay? So, uh, that's the, uh, the futurist view. Yes? Sure, okay. So there is um, a little over halfway through. So the mid-trib is midway. That's easy to understand. Halfway through the seven and a half years, you have um, these judgments poured out. But then it's partway through the last three and a half years that the judgments shift from 
sort of natural judgments, floods and stuff like that, which Christians die in floods and Christians die in earthquakes and stuff like that. So the idea, the, the thought of the pre-wrath view is that, um, it, remember, each case, the, the pulling out of the believer is regarded as protection through the tribulation. So if you believe you are pre-trib, that means the church is pulled out to avoid the whole tribulation. Uh, the mid-trib sees the church being pulled out so that so when the judgment really begins to fall upon the earth, that the, the Christians are pulled out before the, it gets intense. And then partway beyond mid-tribulation, as you get closer to the return of Christ, you have God pouring out these very punitive actions um, where he brings direct suffering by means of judgment upon the people of God. And so the pre-wrath view says that God allows the church to remain on the earth a little bit past the midpoint to where God begins to pour out his direct punitive wrath. And then he pulls them right out before the, the, the wrath, thus pre-wrath, if that makes any sense. So basically, if you could view it on a timeline, um, <clears throat> let's say this is the seven-year tribulation, okay? Uh, the, the pre-tribulation view says the church is caught up before, okay? The post Tribute says the church is protected through, but is caught up to be with Jesus in the air to come back with him at the end when he returns at the end of the tribulation. So pre and post, obviously mid being right in the middle when sort of these things begin to befall the earth. And then the pre-wrath is going to be between these two points when God's direct punitive wrath begins to pour out. And so it's, it's a little bit further on. So you have the pre-trib uh, rapture, you have the mid, you have um, pre-wrath, and then post-trib. Does that make sense? If this is the tribulation, the church is either going to be caught out before, after, in the middle, or a little further on when the, the punitive, if you could almost say punitive wrath of God, where it's special suffering he pours out on the unbeliever. Did that... Um, then another view is what is called the idealist view of the book of Revelation. This is a hyper sort of uh, symbolic view of the book of Revelation. It sees literally everything in the book of Revelation as being a broad picture of the, the conflict between Christ and his church versus Satan and the world. It's just highly figurative. And I mean, it's just everything is figurative pretty much in the book of Revelation. And it's all sort of a story of the conflict between Jesus and his people and Satan in the world with Jesus being victorious. And um, radical forms of this idealist view um, have the opposite problem of preterism. Preterism believes what? Everything is fulfilled pretty much in the past. If you're a full preterist, it's all fulfilled. If you're a partial preterist, most of it's fulfilled except the second coming of Jesus. Um, the idealist that, that just tends to 
see everything as, as a picture, as symbolic, um, it, it becomes, now listen to the way I phrase this, an eternal, timeless depiction of the conflict that exists between Christ and Satan, between the church and the world. Now, if it is a timeless, that's I-D-A-E-A-L-I-S-T, might be hard to read, it's a little messy. If Revelation is a timeless picture, an eternal picture of the conflict between Jesus and Satan, or the church and the world, what does that say about the second coming of Jesus? This is not going to ever happen. It's the total opposite of preterism. Preterism is, it's already done. Full preterism is Jesus already came back. He came uh, back in wrath against Jerusalem, or he came back in wrath against the Roman Empire, and whenever we die individually, we get caught up to be with Jesus in the air. Okay? So the preterist is like, all of it's past, unless you're a partial preterist. The idealist is like, this is just a, an ongoing depiction of this eternal conflict. So there's no end. And if there's no end, there's no new heavens and new earth, no bodily uh, resurrection of Christ. So this is also, I believe, a heretical view of the book of Revelation. Any view of Revelation that does not have Jesus Christ coming back in the clouds, in glory, with the archangels, with the trumpet resounding, with, with the lightning flashing from one end of the sky, where we are going to see him face to face on this earth, any view that denies that, in my opinion, is heresy. Okay? So we can have all kinds of disagreements regarding the timing of certain events. But I believe every view worth considering according to scripture must affirm that Jesus is going to come in the clouds, that we will see him in his glory and that he will set his feet, his resurrected glorified feet on this earth. And at some point there's a judgment. Whether it's one judgment or two, there's going to be a judgment. And whether the new heavens and the new earth is at his second coming or a thousand years later, every view that I think is orthodox, that is acceptable, I don't mean they're all right, but I mean worth considering, says there is a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells, where the believer will live forever in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ following his second coming. Okay, so I only want to consider, we're not going to consider at all other than describing them to you so you can recognize them. If someone identifies themselves as a full preterist or as an idealist, you know right away you're, you're dealing with a problem, but... If they say, well, I'm dispensational premillennial, or I am uh, pre-wrath premillennial, or I'm historic premillennial, or I'm amill, you know you're dealing with people who believe Jesus is coming back. Okay? And I think we need to center our thoughts and conversations. Same thing with post-mill as well, by the way. Jesus is actually coming back. Uh, then there's a final view that uh, I'll sort of introduce now, and we'll look a little bit more at that Lord willing next week. And that is what is called the eclectic view. And, and the eclectic view um, really borrows um, from 
what might be said to be the best of each view and to toss out the worst of each of the views. So, for example, um, the, the eclectic approach to the book of Revelation does believe that part of Revelation deals with the destruction of Jerusalem. Not all of it, but it's at least a part of that. Uh, God's judgment upon unbelieving Israel but also, even more so, God's judgment upon the nations. Okay? Which is agreed with by all of these views. Um, it, it does have a historical approach in that it does regard Revelation as generally applying to history from the time of Jesus' ascension to the time of his second coming, but that it's not descriptive of necessarily particular events, but uh, general overall events throughout history. And it also affirms that much of the book of Revelation is yet future, yet to come. And this would be the Amil view. So it sort of um, has elements that are okay from, from the other views, and it tosses out all the junk. Um, well, I'm not saying every other view is, is junk. That would be cruel, because that would be like, wow, it's all junk. But I'm, what I'm just saying is that whatever the right view is, uh, tossing out preterism and idealism, eclecticism tends to, the approach tends to, to borrow certain elements. So there is certainly future in much of Revelation. There's also, excuse me, future, there's also historical reality um, uh, seen in the book of Revelation. For example, you have the birth of Jesus in one portion. That's certainly, that's historical, right? I mean, that's not future. Uh, and so um, the, the uh, eclectic view is going to see some things have been fulfilled, some things are descriptive of church history, and some things are descriptive of the future, the eclectic view. And um, that would be more your Amil view. Um, let me just give you a little bit of an introduction to how the different views would approach the book of Revelation when you're talking about the futurist view, it tends to, to walk through the book of Revelation from chapter 1 all the way down to chapter 2 as being generally uh, a chronological order of events. Okay? So let me... So don't, does anybody need to write down any of these uh, main words before we stop? I'll take... Can we go 10 more minutes? Does anybody else need this? No? Anyone? Okay. <clears throat> so tossing out the preterist view and tossing out the idealist view, let's focus on... And really tossing out historicism as well, let's focus on futurism and eclecticism. Um, Feel free to ask questions um, if you need me to clarify something, okay? So, remember, there are several views that are here. Uh, dispensational premillennialism, historic premillennialism, mid-tribulational premillennialism, pre-wrath premillennialism, as well as progressive uh, premillennialism. They're all in historical, historic premillennialism, all under the futurism 
uh, perspective. Again, they're going to approach um, basically most or if not all of 4 to 22 of Revelation as future. Okay? This view, so it's, it's sort of Revelation is a, a timeline that moves from basically the first century church to the second coming. Basically. Okay? And it just, it marches in order through history. Uh, or through, I should say, the future. Whenever these things begin to uh, befall, which the first century part is the, the letters to the churches. But as soon as it's done with the letters to the churches, everything else is future from chapter 4 to 22. And once the events of chapter 4 begin to unfold, they're just going to progress chronologically. The one thing following after the other all the way through. Okay? The eclectic view, which is the, uh, I think, amill postmill view, sees... Uh, the book of Revelation in a slightly different light. How many people know how many visions are in the book of Revelation? John has a certain number of visions while he's on the island of Patmos. Together they make up the book of Revelation, but there's visions throughout the book of Revelation. How many are there? Seven. So there are seven visions in the book of Revelation. Okay? If you will, the futurist view sees these uh, visions as sequential. Uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Okay? So just in order like this. Three, four, five, six, seven. John has these seven visions, and they line up as soon as the events start to unfold. At the end, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, all done. Okay? Eclecticism also sees the, well, you can't help but see the seven visions because they're very clearly marked out as seven visions. Uh, he, he moves on to the next, you know, then I saw this and so on. Uh, the, the eclectic view would see these visions as um, progressively parallel. What do I mean by that? Well, that each of the visions have component elements that uh, begin with the first century and progress to the second coming. And they might not all cover exactly the same thing, but like vision two might, you know, start here uh, and end here. And vision three might start here and end here. And vision four might start here and end here. Vision 5 might start here and end here. Uh, vision 6 might cover here. Uh, vision 7 might go from here to here. Okay? All the end of each vision being the second coming of Christ and final judgment. Okay? Because, and here's what's interesting, you do actually find references at the end of each seven visions to the return of Christ or to judgment. And let me just quickly read those off to you, and we'll close in prayer. First of all, um, vision number one, that's Revelation chapter one through chapter three, verse 22. This 
uh, covers um, Jesus with or among the church. Uh, And from this particular view, it stretches from his being with the church from the first century to the end. So, when, for example, Jesus is addressing seven real churches during the first century, that begins this first vision, but also the, the, the letters to the churches are understood as also being a proper, properly applicable to churches throughout the church age. Right? So they do apply to seven real churches in the first century, the letters of Christ, but then they also, principles of these words of Christ to these seven churches apply to churches all the way to the end of history. Okay? And so, notice how the section of this vision, this first vision, ends. This is chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. And, and notice how it sort of has uh, an, an end sound to it. It says there that um, he who overcomes, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne. As I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne, he who has his, an ear, let him, uh, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, uh, this is a, a principle for Christians throughout the age until the return of Christ, that, that he who overcomes, who will sit with Christ in eternity, is not simply uh, believers in the first century church, but is in reference to our future with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it begins uh, with speaking to these seven churches. It ends talking about our future with Christ. Okay? The second vision, uh, this uh, vision is the vision of heaven and the seals. This is chapter 4 through chapter 7, verse 17. Here again, just like we have in the beginning of the first vision, Jesus is in heaven. This one starts with Jesus in heaven. This one starts with Jesus in heaven as well. And... um, Let's see. Um, The vision begins with Jesus' present reign in heaven, continues to the end of the age. You'll notice uh, at the end of the second vision, we read uh, Revelation 6, 16 to 17. It says, "They, They said to the mountains, to the rocks, Fall on us, hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, who is able to stand. And then chapter 7, verses 16 and 17 of his people. So that's a warning to the unbeliever. He's coming, and they're going to cry out that the wrath uh, that the rocks would fall on them to hide them from the lamb and then the promise for the believer toward the end of this section is they will hunger no longer no no thirst anymore nor will sun beat down on them nor any heat for the lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of waters of life and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes so notice again we begin uh, now with Jesus in heaven and at the end of this second vision it ends up with the unbeliever crying out because the, la- the lamb is returning but the hope of the believer is no more crying no more death and then you move to the, the third vision where you have the seven trumpets and this is chapter 8 down to 11 verse 19 and this then addresses the many troubles which is going to come upon the world because of its rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ Uh, chapters 10 and 11 focus more on the church and the little book and the two witnesses but again this third vision ends with the end of the age 
Uh, let me read Revelation eleven fifteen. Then the seventh angel sounded. There were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And, and when does that happen? When do the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of Christ? Well, 1 Corinthians 15 says the same thing uh, as does Thessalonians, that, that the kingdoms of this world transfer to Christ, which is at his second coming, which is the end of the third vision. Uh, also, uh, the end of this third section, this for the third vision, Revelation eleven eighteen. the nations were enraged, your wrath came, the time came to judge the dead and to reward your bondservants. That's the end of the age. Okay? Vision number four. This is chapter 12 through 1420. The vision begins there with the birth of Messiah. Where's that? Here. Okay? Goes back to the beginning again. And it also ends with the end of the age. Revelation 14, 14, the end of the fourth vision. Then I looked, behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like the Son of Man, having a golden crown on his hand, on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. That's judgment at the return of Christ. See, this happens, it's happened so far with every one of these sections. The, the seven bowl judgment in Revelation 15 through 16, 21. Uh, vision number five, the seven bowls. Revelation 15 through 16, 21. This vision focuses on the final judgment of these events leading up to the return of Christ. And so uh, the fifth vision starts, well, I meant to do this one as the shorter one. Uh, but starts closer toward uh, the end. But again, the end of this uh, vision uh, speaks of judgment. It talks, for example, in 1620 of every island fleeing away. The mountains are being shaken, right? And, and we see this in Matthew 24 when Jesus talks about uh, his second coming. Uh, then vision 6 focuses on the fall of Babylon, and we see this, uh, this vision from chapter 17 through chapter 19, verse 21. This focuses on the fall of Babylon, the judgment of the beast and the prophet, and it ends again in chapter 19 with his second coming. We have the, the final battle and the coming of Christ in the clouds. Okay, that's chapter 19, verses 17 to 21. He, he comes. Um, Come assemble for the great supper of God so that you meet the flesh and drink uh, of kings and the flesh of commanders, the flesh of mighty men and the kings, excuse me, the flesh of horses and those who sit on them. I saw the beast, the kings of the earth and their armies. They assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast. Um, and of those who worshipped his image, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, that's judgment, right, uh, which burns with brimstone. The rest were killed with the sword, which came out of the mouth of him who sat on the horse. Right? So again, you have this vision ending with judgment and the return of Christ. Uh, the great consummation, Revelation 20 uh, to twenty-two twenty-one. Um, now, the Amel will see 
the binding of Satan as being when Jesus bound Satan during his earthly ministry. Jesus said, I'm, I bound the strong man. He says, I fall, saw hev, uh, Satan falling uh, from heaven like lightning. And then on the cross, he crushed the serpent's head, which was prophesied in Genesis chapter 3, uh, with the first mention of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then you see from that point onward, this explosion of those who are saved from mainly being focused around the region of Palestine with a few believers scattered here and there to literally going throughout the whole world so that John says in Revelation 7, I looked at the throne of Christ and saw around the throne people, men and women of every nation, tribe, and tongue. And so what they understand by the nations are deceived no longer. What he means is that the gospel is no longer held to the small region of Palestine, but that every man and woman of every nation, tribe, and tongue will not be deceived and kept from the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that there will be men and women of every one of these nations saved and around the throne of Christ. They understand this to mean a, a limitation of Satan where he can do nothing to stop the progress of the gospel. You say, what do you mean he can't do anything? There's persecution. Yeah, but you realize there's the elect and every one of the elect will be brought into the kingdom and Satan can't stop that. So that's the the understanding of that. And then of course uh, as you move through chapter 20, the Amil view would see so many parallels between Revelation 20 and also over uh, earlier when John had his vision of the throne room, the description of the throne, and it's interesting in Revelation 20 it describes the disembodied Christians, the, the, the souls of those who have died are around Christ. And then you have a movement toward judgment and Satan being judged, which uh, the Amil would say is parallel with the judgment that you saw at the end of Revelation 19. So you don't have two final Armageddons, two judgments, two returns of Christ. These are, since they are parallel, okay, 19 and 20 are parallel, so that the two battles are one. The two judgments are one judgment, and the two returns are one return. And of course, we all know that um, Revelation 20 to 22 definitely ends in the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a description of the descending of Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem. Uh, in the clouds, uh, we have the appearance of Christ and so on in, in Revelation 21, 20, 20, excuse me, 21 and 22. Um, and uh, it's interesting, too, this view would see, for example, uh, the, the trumpets and the bowls. See, this view is sequential, and so this has seven trumpets, then seven bowls. But in the parallel view, the seven trumpets are the same as the seven bowls. And I'll conclude with this, okay? This is interesting. As you look at the trumpets and the bowls, the first trumpet and the first bowl have to do with judgment coming upon the earth. The second trumpet and the second bowl have to do with judgment coming upon the sea. The third trumpet and the third bowl deal with rivers. The fourth trumpet and the fourth bowl have to do again with the sea. The fifth trumpet and the fifth bowl have to do with the abyss and the beast, both of them. The sixth trumpet and bowl have to do with war. And then the seventh trumpet and bowl have to do with Jesus' second coming and judgment. They just line up. 
Again, this would maybe seem to favor this seven vision parallel view where John begins at different points, describes like turning a diamond, seven aspects of Christian history all culminating in Jesus' return and in judgment. So those are, I would say, are the major approaches to the book of Revelation. Um, The sequential view. See now if you have... Revelation 19 ending here and Revelation 20 ending here, you have the return of Christ at the end of Revelation 19, then it must be that the throne reign you see in 20 is on the earth because he's come back. Because they follow sequentially. But if this describes his return at the end of 19, and then we come to the next vision, where are you back at? The beginning, which then ends with second coming and judgment. So those are two major approaches to the book of Revelation. And uh, we're not preaching through Revelation now, Lord willing, we will at some point in the future, but we're just laying down these building blocks. So those are different approaches to the book of Revelation. We had the the preterists, the historicists, the futurists, the idealists, the eclectic view, and then we have two major approaches to the structure of the book of Revelation, one of sequential, seven sequential visions, and seven parallel progressive uh, visions. And it's interesting to read the book of Revelation from both perspectives. And, And there's a lot of similarity that you see, even similar time periods, you see, you know, falling down in these different visions, which would send to, tend to lend credibility to this. And then there's also the, the reading of the book uh, sequentially. And it basically, this is the ultimate division, in part, between why some people are on mill and why some people are futurists. Although both hold to a lot of future aspect. Because notice, all of these end in future. Okay, but and I'll, I got to say this one thing. So, for the Christian from this perspective, other than the letter to the churches, all of this. Let me use the red. Is yet to come. Great red, right? <laughs> that's my invisible red pen. <clears throat> let's try. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's in, put your glasses on. You'll see it. No, uh, let's try this one. So that when these events unfold, it is really experienced by uh, the believers who are here when these things start to unfold. But for the Christian, in this view, there are comforts and counsels of what is going on now as well as what is going on in the future. So that this view, Revelation is all future. This view sees Revelation as past and present and future, in that there are statements throughout Revelation to provide not just future hope, but present comfort as well. Now, don't get me wrong, there's, future, there's present hope and future fulfillment also, okay? But, but that there are more practical things said uh, toward the church in the middle and the present, because these are starting back here and ending here. Okay, I hope that was helpful um, in, in kind of seeing these different approaches and how they come together. Well, my 10 minutes are 20, so I apologize about that. Um, you, and I told you last week, don't ever count on, wow, I have nothing more to say, right? <laughs>
All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you so, so much for this time together in, in your word and just looking at these different views and just pondering them together. I pray that we would be those who are constantly testing and checking everything according to the word of God and to see what is so, that we would not be a, a follower of... R.C. Sproul, or John MacArthur, or David Pauley, or John Walford, or whoever, uh, that we want to follow Scripture. And so let us also be incredibly charitable, knowing that these, especially these last major two groups uh, together, all believe in the literal, physical, bodily return of the Lord Jesus Christ. All believe that we'll see him reign on the earth. All believe judgment is coming. All believe that the lost and Satan and the Antichrist and the beast are cast into the lake of fire. All believe that your people will live and reign with you forever, uh, ultimately on a new heavens and a new earth. And there's really a lot in common, even though there are some really important distinctions of approach and timing. But, but let us focus more on the commonality and also where there's the differences. Let us be charitable and, and gracious and, and hopeful in believing the best about our brethren, but also being, being willing to always examine the scriptures, whatever view we may hold to, to just ask ourselves, you know, what, what best fits with the full context of scripture. And we ask these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.